Yes, Father, you are our salvation. Thank you for sending Jesus on the cross for us and conquering Satan, sin, and death with the open grave. In your name, amen. Amen. Please be seated, and the children are dismissed. While they are heading out, let me just share two things real quickly that I forgot to put in the video announcements, and I apologize for that that uh, there is going to be a security meeting right after service. So if you have been feeling as if you want to be part of our security team to help protect our church, uh, please, after the service, go into the library with the wonderful Miss Linda Shirley, and uh, she will direct you uh, in that. Also, April 7th, we have an ushers and hospitality meeting. We are uh, seeking to bring about more welcoming uh, atmosphere. Not that we've been doing bad at that, but we want to set up people specifically for the goal of, of welcoming people in. And uh, we want to, uh, you know, just share that with the ushers and people who are interested in hospitality. So on, I believe it's April 7th, right after service in the library, please uh, gather for that meeting. All right, well, we are continuing in our series on the book of John. We still have not gotten out of chapter 3, but that's okay because God is speaking through His Word. And I, I love this book. I've shared, with that, shared, you, I shared that with you several times. And today we're going to be looking at John the Baptist again for the last time. And it's kind of a wrap-up. If you remember early on in the, the beginning of our series in John chapter 1, we saw a lot of John the Baptist and we saw a lot of his passion for glorifying and, and edifying the body to believe in Jesus and to go after him. So today's actually kind of a wrap-up of that. But there's also some deeper truths that we're going to unpack as we see him interacting with his disciples. And we're talking about, uh, the, the sermon title for today is Rejecting Narcissus. And we're going to be looking at John 3, through 36. And many of you might not know, and you could be praying for me so I don't fall into the water, because I move around a lot. But many of you may not know, but there's a Greek myth about Narcissus. Some of you might think of a flower, which is true, there is a Narcissus flower, but there's also in Greek mythology a person named Narcissus. This is actually where we get our, our word narcissism, all right? So in the Greek myth, this guy Narcissus thought he was so beautiful and so handsome and so wonderful and so important that when people tried to interact with them, he would just say, no, I don't, I'm not interested. When ladies would try to pursue him to be their husband, he would say, you're not good enough for me. Do you see how handsome I am and how not handsome and beautiful you are because I'm incredible. And that was kind of his attitude and there was a, a Greek goddess named Echo who tried to pursue him and he shunned her and put her away and then she made him for the rest of eternity look at his own reflection in a pool. Now you'd figure that that would be something that Narcissus would totally hate but no he loved himself so much that he enjoyed his punishment and actually fell more and more and more in love with himself. That's a pretty incredible story. But it points to the reality of narcissism, as we've seen, where we can be so obsessed with ourselves, where we can be so obsessed with our goals and our mission and our heart and our own desires that we miss the reality of the world around us. You see, often we can make everything about ourselves. I know that I can and I know I do this often in my life where I think it's all about me, but my friends, it's not. And we're going to see in this passage, John confronting his disciples. You see, because we are unfit to sit upon the throne of our lives. 
We are unfit to sit upon the throne of our lives. You see, Jesus should be on the throne of our lives, but many times we're tempted to put our own butt on the throne of our lives. But we are unfit for that, and John shares that with his disciples. And I believe that as we look at this passage, the question that comes out is, how do we allow Christ to increase? If we need to get off of the throne and we need to diminish, that means that Christ needs to flourish, that Christ needs to increase in our lives. And I believe that we see the answer to that in this passage. So if you would read with me John chapter 3, 22 through 36. John chapter 3, 22 through 36. This is the word of the Lord. After this, that's Jesus hanging out with Nicodemus. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthy way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Wow. John the Baptist, again, is highlighting Jesus. And we're going to focus in on verses 22 through 30, because I believe the rest of it even expounds upon those specific verses. John had just spent a lot of time trying to proclaim who Jesus was. If you look at John chapter 1, John the Baptist was all about letting people know who Jesus was. And here, after Jesus was spending time with Nicodemus, he goes and begins his ministry of baptism as well. But we see in John chapter 4, verse 1, that the disciples were baptizing. Jesus was not. And that's what really ruffled the feathers of these other disciples, these disciples of John the Baptist. I think the first thing that you and I need to understand when it comes to how do we allow Christ to increase is that you and I must recognize our desire to rule. You and I must recognize our desire to rule. First and foremost, we have got to be honest about where our hearts are really at when it comes to our life and our mission. If we're to look in the mirror and we're to really be honest with our hearts, there is a desire for us to put our butts upon the throne of our lives. It's absolutely true. And anyone who says that they don't want to rule their own life from time to time is not telling the truth. Because we do. 
We want to drive the car of our lives. Now, that might not always be the case because we might come to the recognition that, man, I can't. I'm always going to mess it up. And that's the truth of the gospel is that we will mess it up. But you see these disciples, they come to John the Baptist in frustration. And they don't even recognize the problem. You know the old adage that in order for you to work on a problem, you have to recognize the problem? Well, these guys did not recognize their problem. They're hanging out with a Jew and talking about purification, and they use that as an excuse to go talk to John about their real frustration. They come to John the Baptist, and they're like, hey, you know that guy, Jesus, that you said was really important? You know, he's over there across the way stealing all of our people. You see, he's baptizing, and we're baptizing, and you're baptizing, and he's becoming a little bit more important than you. And here's the real issue, that his disciples are becoming more important than us. We can't have that. Did we back the wrong horse? We need to look really right because we chose John the Baptist. He was the one calling repent. He was the crazy man wearing really weird clothes, eating really crazy food. And we were there saying he's the one. We followed him. We went after him. Did we mess up? Are we wrong? We can't be wrong. Right? See, they didn't even recognize their own problem. When they looked at their mission, they could only see the image of, of themselves. When they looked at what they were called to do, they could only see the image of themselves, but the wider mission of life is beyond our own reflection. The wider mission of life is beyond our own reflection. Just like Narcissus, we could stare at ourselves and imagine that we are kings of our own roost. That we control our own mission. That we control our own life. That we can be in control. Now, control is one of the hardest things for the human to release. Because we love control. We like it when we know what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. We like that we can shape it and mold it and make it. But guys, that's just a myth. Just like Narcissus is a myth. Our ability to control and shape and and guide our own lives is a myth because a tornado might hit our home. We didn't have control of that. We need to recognize that the wider mission of our life is beyond our own reflection. Now, I remember a couple years ago hearing a crazy news story. And it might have been on Facebook, but I do know it's true because some things on Facebook just aren't true, okay? I remember this story about this person who was driving and they were turning left and they got clipped because they didn't recognize that there was a stoplight. They didn't stop at the stoplight. They were just turning left and they just weren't paying attention at all. Now, when the officer came to them and asked this person, why did you not stop at the stoplight? The person was honest. They said, well, I was looking at myself in the mirror of the visor. And when I looked up before, out of the windshield, it was green. But then I was looking at myself, and I turned left while looking at myself, which never do that. It's always a bad idea, even if it's a green light, okay? But this person caused an accident because they were looking at themselves. The wider mission of Jesus is out the windshield, not in the mirror. Listen, we need to, as a people of God, be looking out the windshield, not in 
the mirror. And there might be a temptation. Let me just take a side point. We could really look in the rearview mirror too and see what used to be and long for what was in the past. But if we look in the rearview mirror the whole time, we're also going to have an accident. We need to realize that the goal of Jesus is out the windshield, not in the mirrors that happen in our cars. The wider mission is beyond our own reflection. We must reflect on our own selfish desires and recognize that we can miss the bigger mission of Christ because we refuse to look outside the windshield. Let's not look at ourselves and think that it's all about us and cause damage in our lives or the lives of other people. We have a mission, a goal, a passion to live for Jesus as we've been talking about. And John the Baptist had to set his people straight. They are confessing their issue with themselves. It is very obvious. It is clear to John the Baptist what they are saying. Because look at what he says after that. He says, they came to John and they were frustrated. And John answered them, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Cannot even receive one thing. He knows what's going on. You and I must recognize that Jesus and his mission are greater than us in our mission. That's a point that we, that we made a couple weeks ago when we looked at John the Baptist in John chapter 1. John the Baptist was constantly telling everybody in earshot, Jesus' mission is more important and it's greater than our own. Jesus' mission is greater and more important than our own. That is something that is hard to really truthfully grasp. Again, it goes back to the reality of control, looking at our own reflection in the mirror like Narcissus. But his mission is wider. It's bigger. It's more important. And John was sharing this with his disciples. Jesus' mission is more important. He is more important. And he gets a little bit frustrated with his guys later in this passage. And he's like, weren't you here? Didn't you hear me say that he's greater Why are you coming and being frustrated now? I told you a while ago. Just go and follow him. If you remember, John the Baptist was walking on the road and Jesus was there. And he's like, he's greater. Go ahead and follow that guy. And those disciples were like, okay. And they followed Jesus instead of John the Baptist. And here we have some of these guys that just didn't listen to that. Or maybe they weren't there. But he's like, listen, guys, I told you that I'm not the one. Why does this surprise you? Why does this make you frustrated? I told you he was the one and I am not. Our mission for our lives cannot compare or compete to his mission, compete with his mission. What is the mission of Jesus? Well, part of it, a huge part of it, is that he would increase in our lives and that we would decrease. So how can you and I allow Jesus to increase in our lives? How can we allow that to happen? And I believe that the next thing that we can see from the story of John the Baptist about causing Jesus to increase is that we are to remember that everything good in life is a gift. Everything good in life is a gift. John the Baptist, his first rebuke of his disciples is he says that we cannot receive even one thing without it being given. Let that sink in for a second. You and I cannot have even one thing that is good in life if it's not given from heaven. 
He's confronting his disciples' selfishness. He's confronting their narcissism, thinking that the good things that they have in life come from themselves. Because listen to their arrogance and their narcissism in this process. We followed the right guy. We've got to be right. We can't be wrong. No, no, no. John, you need to be upset. He's, he's becoming more important than you. They're trying to pull at John the Baptist's ego. And he's like, listen, everything that I have been given, everything that you have been given, everything that Jesus has been given comes from heaven. Not even one thing. You were wrong, and it's okay. You followed me for a time, and that was a gift in your life, but now you need to move on to something bigger, greater, and better. Didn't you recognize I pointed you to him? This is a humbling change in perspective when we can recognize that everything good is a gift. We talked about this at Thanksgiving, if you remember way back then, that everything that you and I have, even down to one small good thing, comes from above. It comes from heaven. So my question to challenge us is why do we think anything different? Why do we pretend or, or feel as if the good things we have in life come from our own abilities? That they come from our own mission for ourselves? Again, look at the disciples that John the Baptist was seeking to rebuke in this moment. They felt like they had an, a right to be the most popular disciples. There are so many different things that John the Baptist is confronting in this one moment. They felt like they deserved good things because they followed John the Baptist. We found him. We were following the prophet. We deserve good things. Why are they more important now? I mean, just, I mean, just think about this. And we can laugh at them and we can make fun of them and jeer and point, but we also need to recognize that that's us. That's me. I can come to a place consistently where I feel like I've come to a place of earning what I have, that I deserve what I have. I don't deserve good children. I don't deserve a wonderful wife. All of that is a gift. I don't deserve to be standing on this pulpit preaching and teaching. I don't deserve to be the pastor of this church. I don't deserve it. But many times I can come to a place where I think, oh, yeah, look at all that I did. It's about time I got recognition for something. And in my heart of hearts, I feel that way sometimes. I'm sure you do as well. But every good gift, even down to one thing, is from heaven. We had nothing to do with it. And John the Baptist uses that to leverage this reality to his disciples. Just like us, his disciples were slow on the uptake that Jesus is everything. They were really slow about it. And John, again, as we said, reminds them, I told you I am not the one. Why is it so hard for you to get it? And it was because they felt they were more important that they deserved more recognition. Remember, every good thing in life is a gift. The next thing that we can see that John the Baptist gives his disciples about get, allowing Jesus to increase is the recognition that believers are servants in the kingdom, not the sovereign. Believers are servants in the kingdom and not the sovereign. 
Again, we go back to this idea of putting our butts on the throne of our own lives. It is really tempting for us to do that, to make life about us. We need to reject Narcissus. We need to reject that view and that, that idea of ourselves because we are called to be servants. We are not called to be the sovereign. Look at what he talks about, this view, this image of the bridegroom. He's like, listen, you guys aren't getting it. Every good thing is a gift. I'm not the person. And they're probably still looking at him like, why aren't we important again? And he's like, okay, let me just give you an image of this then. And he says, I am the best man. Jesus is the groom. Israel is the bride. And he's like, my goal as the best man is to make sure everything goes smoothly, that the path is laid so that when the wedding happens, everybody can celebrate the bride and groom. When is there ever been a time at a wedding that after everything happened, everyone said, yeah, the best man? Have you ever seen that? Because if you have, that's the weirdest wedding I've ever seen. Completely bonkers. That doesn't happen. The best man and the bridesmaids and the groomsmen, they step back and they allow them, the wedding, the bride and the groom to be the most important thing. And he's saying, listen, if I were to step into that place, that would be like me going to a wedding, and after they're married and they do their kiss as the best man, I move them out of the way and I try to take a bow. Have you ever seen that at a wedding? I think if you did, the mother of the bride would probably punch the best man in the face. She'd get up and be like, what is your problem? And all of you mothers who have been mothers of the bride, you know what I'm talking about. Because you want their da- your daughter and their, their, your son-in-law to be celebrated and loved and encouraged. And he's saying this to his disciples. He's like, why don't you get it? I am a servant. I am not the sovereign. I am not the king. It is not about me. My goal, everything in my life has been to this moment to use my finger and my life and my voice to point to Jesus. I am just the best man. I am a servant. And here's a little bit of of background knowledge to understand even more. One of my favorite commentators on the book of John, his name's uh, Kostenberger, and he says this, he says, in light of the OT background, that's the Old Testament, in light of the Old Testament background where Israel is depicted as the bride of Yahweh, the Baptist is suggesting that Jesus is Israel's awaited king and Messiah. In keeping with ancient law, the Baptist as the best man would be barred from ever marrying the bride. Not only could he, not only did John the Baptist not want to be the groom, he couldn't be as the best man. Imagine, if you will, again, this idea of the best man, and it's about time to have the ceremony, and the kiss is about to happen, and the best man steps up, and he's like, she's actually my woman, move. Again, the mother of the bride would punch the best man. (laughs) That would be a crazy, bonkers wedding. And he's telling his disciples, if I did that, that's how ridiculous this whole thing would be. It would not make sense. That is not my job. And it's not your job. We are servants of the king. We are not the sovereign. We cannot put our butts on that throne. And when we can truly embrace our role in the kingdom, Christ will increase more 
in our lives. He will increase more in our lives when we recognize our position. John recognized his position. He knew who he was. He knew his purpose. He knew his role. Now, for me, if you were to follow the trajectory of my ministry life, let me just share with you that this is true. Because when I was a young guy and I was going into college, I said to everybody, I'm a youth pastor for life. I'm not going to be one of those sellouts who goes and is a lead pastor who wants to do that. I'm going to be a youth pastor for life. I'm going to have fun. We're going to play video games. I'm going to eat pizza. I'm going to do all of that. I'm going to play Frisbee. It's going to be the best life ever. I'm going to be a youth pastor for life. Well, I felt fulfilled in that position, but then God called me to plant a church on the University of Pittsburgh's campus for college students and young adults. Well, when I stepped into that position, I felt more alive. Something had changed in me. You know, I still got to eat pizza. I still got to play Frisbee. I still got to play some video games with college folks. But I began to deal with deeper issues. College students have a lot of brokenness and deep issues, and they need people to talk to about them. I felt more alive as I was leading and directing this church plan. Let me tell you, when God called me into this position, I feel even more alive. You guys see my energy and my passion. It's because I know that I know that I know that this is the call on my life for the rest of my life. And I read the word of God and God has increased in my life. And as I said yes to that, shortly after saying yes to this position, God released new gifts, new spiritual gifts in my life because he was increasing. That just gets me excited. When we recognize who we are, when we recognize that we are not the king, that we are servants, Christ will increase. How do we allow Christ to increase? If you were to point to a Christian and say, do you want more of Christ in your life? They would probably give the Bible answer, yes, I do. I want more Jesus. Well, here's how. This is not a fun thing sometimes to recognize that you're a servant, but once you do, Christ will explode in your life. How do we have more of Jesus? How does he increase? The next thing that we see, which kind of is a surprise, is that we see that joy is discovered when we direct others to Christ. Look at the end of verse 29. He says this. says, The one who who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. This joy of mine is now complete. He looks at his disciples and says, not only am I the best man, but that makes me happy. That brings me joy. When I can point to the bride and the groom and say, it's about them. Man, have you ever seen a best man at a wedding just bawling? I love it when guys cry like that. And they're just like, I'm so excited for you, man. I love you. That's what he's saying. That's a joyful tear. Those are joyful. That's a joyful cry. And there's John standing as the best man. And he says, that, that's the joy that I have. I love it. My joy is complete. I'm now done. I can step back. I can even die. That's what he means by the word complete. It's done. It's over. I can move away. It's now handed off to the person who is the rightful heir of the throne. Man, when we do that, when we separate away and we realize that we can't control our lives, that it's always going to be a mess when we do, and we allow Jesus on the throne to control things and he increases in our life, our joy is going to be complete because we're like, things are finally going the way they're supposed to go because I can never do it. 
We will always destroy our joy when we take the throne. Always. That's not a point, but you can write that down. You will always destroy the joy when you take the throne. But when we give him the throne and we allow him to increase in our life, our joy will be complete. Because when self is elevated, joy gets deflated. I like to use play on words sometimes. <laughs> it's fun. It makes us remember those things. When self is elevated, joy gets deflated. We destroy the joy. I want joy in my life. Do you? I want to live joyful. And not the, the fake emotional happiness where it's like, because life is not always going to be unicorns and rainbows. Unicorns are a big deal by now. I don't know if you know that. If you have a daughter that's about seven, like unicorn everything. Life's not always unicorns and rainbows. So we need the joy of the Lord to be our strength. It's, we're not always going to be happy, but we can always be joyful when He is on the throne. When self is elevated, joy gets deflated. When I seek to elevate myself, I, I seem to never measure up. When we try to live for the glory and, and the, the pleasure of man, we will never, ever get enough praise. Ever. Because we'll always feel like there's more. We'll always feel like we deserve more. We deflate our joy. Finally, the thing that we can see in the life of John the Baptist with his disciples is that Christ's fame flourishes when ours fades. Christ's fame flourishes when ours fades. We can have more of Jesus when we give the fame to him. When we glorify him, we begin to decrease and he can increase. Look at verse 30. John the Baptist says it himself. He said, he must increase, but I must decrease. When his fame flourishes, his fame flourishes when ours fades. When we begin to diminish, he can increase. Here's another point that you can write down that's not in the sermon notes. And that is this. You and I can have as much Jesus as we want. We can have as much Jesus as we want. And if we are lacking and we don't have an increase of Jesus, it's because deep down somewhere we don't want it. Allow that to challenge you. Because if you're recognizing the lack of Jesus in your life, you are the one blocking it, not him. That's a hard thing to own. But you and I can have as much Jesus as we want to have when Christ's fame Christ's fame flourishes when ours fades. Will we step back and allow ourselves to diminish so that he can be put to the forefront and his fame can be made great? To allow Christ to increase in our lives, we must first recognize that we have a narcissist problem, that we are narcissistic people. <laughs> we need to recognize that. We need to own it. And then we need to let Jesus' mission be more important than ours. We need to remember that everything good is a gift and we need to remember that we are servants of the king. We are not the sovereign of the kingdom. May Christ increase in your life. May you have a passionate desire for more. Let's pray. Ah, oh, Father, I thank you for the truth that we can have as much Jesus as we want. Holy Spirit of the living God, I pray that you'll put a deep yearning and a deep craving for more of Jesus in our lives.
You are good. God, I pray that we will reject Narcissus in our lives. That we will look out the windshield to see your mission and stop looking in the mirror to see our own. Bless us and strengthen us. In your name, amen. Amen.